Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Today, we have two guests, Julian Cunard and Victor Akinwande. Both Julian and Victor are young researchers who have been working out of the IBM Kenya lab. Well, sort of. Julian started about a year ago, but because of COVID, he's been working entirely remotely. And Victor, after a great internship and then a productive two years at the Kenya lab, he's recently left to start working towards a PhD at CMU, or Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh in the United States. Both Julian and Victor love learning and also just love trying new things. I think you're in for a treat hearing their stories. Julian, Victor, it's a pleasure to have you both here. Hi, John. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, John. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and Julian. So, Victor, I think you grew up in Nigeria. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I grew up in the southwest part of Nigeria, Lagos State. Uh, Lagos is very popular because in very many ways, it's the economic capital of the, of the country. It's, Lagos is full of energy from the very moment you wake up to, to when you go to bed. You can feel the, the energy of the city. There's a lot of hustle and bustle. You have to, you have to be active. You have to, you know, open your eyes. You know, like Lagosians, they like to say something called "shine your eyes," which basically translates to whatever it is you're doing. You have to make sure that you know you're not getting cheated or, or things like that. So, as a as a Lagosian, any 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 typical Lagosian would would be a very street smart person. <laughs> And so your upbringing, did you get much ex exposure to technology and computers? How did you get interested in uh, computers? I was always fascinated by mobile phones and, and the internet. So I, I got my first mobile phone when I was maybe 16 from, from an aunt. And I was just very interested in seeing where I could read articles online. I could browse the internet and I really enjoyed surfing, but I wasn't really into computer science. I wanted to study medicine. But I realized that, you know, may, maybe medicine, I'm, I'm not cut out for medicine because I tried uh, applying to, to study medicine in one of the popular universities and I didn't get in my, on my first try. And an uncle of mine who uh, was actually an electrical engineer and he had this company that was doing telematics, uh, he, he called me to his office one day and we we're having a conversation and he said, hey, why don't you consider... Uh, electrical engineering or computer science. There's this guy called Philippe Magwali, who is a, uh, an accomplished uh, Nigerian computer scientist. And I went and you know looked at <laughs> computer science as a career and realized the richest man in the world was a computer scientist, was Bill Gates. <laughs> and that was uh, so interesting. And I started reading about programming and reading about basic on my phone. Does everyone have a, uh, a phone in Nigeria? No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, there, I guess, I don't know what the statistics are, but I guess the mobile, the mobile penetration rate might be 70 to 80%, but the smartphone penetration rate is definitely lower than that. I see. I see. But in Lagos, I mean, are, uh, is it greater penetration in the big cities, I guess? Uh, exactly. Right. So, so exactly in the, in the big cities, there's, there's definitely uh, greater penetration for and, sure. And like in Kenya, is, is commerce, uh, transacted through phones or? Is. So one of the things that sort of struck me, the first night I got to Nairobi, I booked an Airbnb and I went from the airport. I, I, I somehow found my way to, to Karen and I took a, a Boda. So I took a Boda to, to my place and 
I had maybe a thousand shillings and I gave this boda a thousand shillings. Okay, okay, okay. one second, Victor. We have to do some translation. First okay. of all, a boda means a, a small bus that people travel in all over Nairobi. And a thousand shillings, I believe that's 10 US dollars. Okay. So yeah, yeah. make sure you translate. Yeah. And and so he didn't he didn't have uh, he didn't have change. And uh, he, he basically said, Oh, you know, if you have M-Pesa, you can pay me with M-Pesa, right? So, so M-Pesa is this thing that, that works over uh, USSD, right? And I don't think it's that popular outside, um, you know, outside the continent as much, but effectively allows you to, uh, it allows like two-way communication uh, via cellular. So you don't, effectively, you don't, you don't need internet access and you can build very simple applications on top of this, uh, on top of this technology. Right? And one of the things that, you know, the leading telecommunications company in Kenya, Safaricom, figured out is that you can build an entire payment system on top of this, you know, technology. And you don't need, since you don't need access to, to internet and there's a higher, you know, mobile phone penetration than, than smartphone penetration, more people can access, uh, can access this technology. So that's, that's what M-Pesa is. But anyway, what, what struck me from that, uh, from that engagement was just to me how pervasive M-Pesa was. Like a Boda, where I was coming from, the pervasiveness of, of technology. I saw, I saw mobile money and M-Pesa as this really cool technology that in Nigeria, the coolest technologies only you know get used by people who are mo- the most educated first, right? Uh, and it was so it was a surprise to me that the uh, even a Boda would prefer to use M-Pesa, a technology, over cash. And to me, when I first experienced it, it was very very surprising. Uh, I, I imagine that you didn't retake your med school exams, but you ended up in no. technology. You're gonna I, I did. IBM. <laughs> I guess you're happy with your decision. You seem like such an ebullient, you know, full of energy kind of guy. Uh, you you uh, definitely love technology. I do. I, no, I absolutely, I think I, I made the right choice. I, I don't uh, regret not studying um, medicine. I, I love technology. I've been here, I've been, you know, in the technology space for for a while, it never gets boring, right? You know, there's there's always something interesting. As you can wake up and someone has invented a new programming language or a new framework and a new library, and you can try it out the, the following day, and everything is open source, and, you know, there's so much interesting things uh, in technology. Okay, so over to you now, Julian. So tell us a little, I think you grew up in Germany, is that right? Yes, yes, right. Just tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you got interested in uh, computers. Well, I think I grew up in a totally different setting than than Victor actually. I grew up like a town, like 60,000 inhabitants or so and compared to the things Victor described, it's uh, much more calm, much family life actually. Like then I grew up, I did a lot of sports and with my father we repaired bicycles and and did a lot of craftsmanship. So there was no technology at all. So then how did you uh, actually pick up an interest in technology? Well, I think this this came much later. <laughs> During growing up and going to school, I started get interested. Like I, I really liked school. I liked mathematics and so on. And then I also li- really liked a subject called nature phenomena, where we where we yeah discussed about all kind of climate, weather, or volcano, or geographies, which really fascinated it. And from there, it directly went also to physics. 
So I really got catched up with physics. So how did you make the transition from physics to uh, computer science? Or did you just say, did you get your um, undergraduate degree in physics? Um, yes, I got my undergraduate degree in physics. And there in physics, there was still not quite a lot of um, technology involved. There's um, kind of theoretical and experimental physics. In school, I really like this nature phenomena. And so then I discovered geophysics. Um, and I thought, oh, that's perfect. It's like physics applied to the earth. It's, it's what I'm really interested in. Um, yeah, what's going on with the earth and so and I enrolled in this in this program, which is called Applied Geophysics. It had a lot of modeling involved, a lot of computer simulations. So there is where I picked up coding. And you're working in climate, right? The future of climate. I think you're a perfect sort of person for the future of climate because your essential interest is the Earth and its uh, systems. Yes, and... it's, that's, that's my connection. That's my kind of strong point there. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a computer scientist. I mean, I did not even know exactly what IBM is doing. Like, and so how did how did that actually happen? How did you encounter IBM? So this was actually towards the end of my PhD. So I continued my PhD in geophysics, and also I did a lot of of computations, like also using high performance computers. And then towards the end, I did a lot of, lot of numerical simulations with physical models. And so, so what I'm really missing and what I really want to learn about is more statistical machine learning approaches, which until that point, I did not really have. So at the end of my PhD, I thought, first, I, I want to learn about these methods. And second, I want to explore the world outside university. And that's how I found out about IBM research as well. Uh, was it? Did they come to your university, or how did you? No, actually, there's this other connection that that my partner she had been working in Kenya for for three years, and so I was looking for opportunities in Kenya as well, um, and it was by luck that I like um, that I or it was kind of love at first sight, like this <laughs> IBM research um, laboratory in, in Nairobi. And I thought, wait, wow, wait, wait, that, love at that's first sight. place I think, to be. <laughs> love at first sight. I think that your your uh, uh, <laughs> significant other there is going to take exception. I think she wants <laughs> herself to be the love at first sight. <laughs> no, like professionally, kind of. <laughs> okay, okay. You're off the hook. <laughs> okay, actually, Victor, over to you now. So tell us a little bit about what your experience at the Kenya Lab has been like. I know you started as an intern. Actually, we overlapped there. You were a great intern. And now your PhD uh, pursuits at CMU. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the internship experience was very defining in very many ways because I was, I'd spent a year in my master's program. So you, after you did your undergrad in Nigeria, you did your master's also in Nigeria, same place, or what happened? Right. So after I did my undergrad in Nigeria, I, I, I did about a year of uh, paramilitary service. I did that uh, in the northern part of Nigeria and then uh, moved to Kigali, Rwanda, for my master's at the, the CME campus there. And I, I spent uh, a year studying and then moved to Nairobi, the, the lab, for an internship. And in in many ways, I think that the culture at the lab was very defining, even up until this moment. Because I think that just shifting from the mindset of you're learning, you're 
being thought by you know, high caliber professors and you're gathering a lot of this information to a mindset of, okay, we're collaborating. And I think that the, the internship experience sort of helped me see how the things that I'd learned in school, all the things that I could learn could actually make a, an impact and how I can actually contribute beyond just you know, absorbing knowledge. Basically, the transition from gaining knowledge to applying the knowledge, I think that that internship experience was very uh, solidified that mindset for me. And I think it boiled down to the people that I had in my team and people that I worked with. And as you said, John, we I did uh, get to interact with you for, for a while. And I think even in that short time, right, the experience with working with you was actually very defining. Because I remember, I remember one of the days where I think myself and Sekou came to your office and we were discussing some, I forget what it was exactly, but I think we were discussing something and and I was uh, trying to explain what backpropagation meant. And it felt, in retrospect, it, it felt dumb to, for me to be explaining what backpropagation meant to someone who could have invented backpropagation. But the way you gave air to, to the ideas that we were talking about and not come off as, you know, the chief scientist, right? The, the way people sort of allowed me as a, as a student to explore my ideas, to be a collaborator and, and not as another intern. I think that was very defining. And of course, I wanted to come back after the internship. I did come back and, and, uh, and spent uh, two and a half years uh, as, a, as a full-time research engineer. And the two and a half years, I did uh, a lot of work in uh, trustworthy AI. So we're very interested in figuring out when uh, deep learning models are processing adversarial inputs, which is a, is a big problem with, with these deep learning systems as people have found that they're very prone to adversarial attacks. We're very interested in figuring out when uh, a predictive model has some sort of bias towards subgroups or it could be biased, or we could also figure out how these subgroups, we can, we can come up with post-hoc explanations based on subgroups. And so, so what was an example, if to make this very concrete, what was an example uh, application of this um, bias in AI? One, one example was in, is in global health. If you, if you take, say, an outcome like neonatal mortality, for instance, one of the hypotheses that we had was that you know, yeah, we know neon, across, say, sub-Saharan Africa, we know neonatal mortality is is a problem, but is it is it uh, a problem that affects everyone equally? Anecdotally, you might think poor people are probably more likely to lose their, their children, but what can the data actually tell us? And I think one, one of the things that we're very interested in being able to demonstrate is that we can use, say, a predictive model as a proxy for the real world and then leverage tools to sort of query that predictive model and allow it to tell us what's going on, right? What, what subgroups adversely um, affected by uh, a certain outcome, right? So what subgroups have a higher chance of, uh, of neonatal mortality, for instance? Okay, but now the, you're also looking at the bias in your models. So did you discover that you created some models and there actually was bias? And how did you actually come to the conclusion that they had bias? Right. So, so the bias, the bias question is, comes, comes as a result of sort of, of the, of the technique. The notion of bias is, is so tied to the notion of fairness. If you have an outcome where you want equality in, in odds or something, you have, a, you have an outcome, say it could be, 
let's say uh, there's a the popular case is predictive justice where people try to figure out if someone is going to reoffend or and then use that to determine what sentence to get or, or what the length of their term is going to be. The goal is you want some sort of equality across the groups. The 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 techniques that we were using to characterize subgroups that might be um, adversely uh, affected by some intervention or to characterize subgroups that are more or less likely to, say, lose their child, for instance, those same techniques can be applied to uh, models as well to figure out if there are subgroups that they're significantly affected by the justice system, right, from, from what we've uh, seen in the data. So basically, you're applying the same techniques that you applied to see if they're bias treatment to subgroups to see if there's bias in the models themselves. Right. Okay. So okay. exactly. So it can, we, can apply to, we can apply it to the model or we can apply it to the data. Okay. Well, very, very interesting. So now over to you, Julian. Tell us a little about your journey. It's only been a year. Quite a bit less than uh, than Victor, and you also you haven't even set foot, as far as I understand, in the Kenya lab because of COVID. Yes, so yes, I've been once to the office to pick up my laptop, um, <laughs> but there was nobody, so I couldn't <laughs> chat with anybody. It was just during the pandemic, and it has been it has been super. It has been a great experience, I must say. Um, onboarded with a team which is specialized in uh, in uncertainty quantification. And the th- interesting thing, I, I think, is that um, they're covering different topics as well. So, so they are attached to, um, like myself, I'm attached to climate research, but then I have team members who are working with health. And then the interesting thing is that you can kind of use similar approaches in order to infer same outputs. There are a lot of physical models, um, like in climate, in health, how, for example, diseases spread, or in, yes, in climate, how, how there are flood models, um, hazard, any kind of hazard models. Also in, in climate, there have been a lot of developments um, with physical models. There are huge simulations to simulate the atmosphere and everything. But I think everybody's realizing that with climate change, it's going to impact everything. It's going to impact the businesses. It's going to impact the societies and the populations. And so how have you felt as a geophysicist? Do you feel like you fit in well? And have you needed to learn a lot of programming and (laughs) and AI? You know, there is also a problem in the beginning of language, because if you come from different domains, you sometimes speak about exactly the same thing but you don't understand each other because you speak another language. So I have a concrete example. Um, What we are doing at the moment is parameter calibration. So you want to find parameters of the physical model, which then can reproduce the desired model output, the desired predictions. Then back in my field in geophysics, everybody talked about inversion because what you're doing is you're inverting the output in order to infer the parameters. But in the end, it's, it boils down to this exactly same thing. Just when I started, everybody was, or my teammates were talking about calibration, and I was thinking, okay, what is exactly meant by this calibration? And I, I, I didn't get it. I think after one or two months, I finally got, oh, wait, this is actually, actually exactly the same principle as inversion. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And so that, did you use the term in model inversion? And that, similarly, I guess they didn't understand that either. 
Yes, exactly. And so I guess your team is really global. I know that a lot of people in climate in the United States, there's, I think, people in Brazil and all, all over doing that. So you, you have quite an experience, although I guess you've never met anybody except through these WebEx meetings. Yes, but in, in fact, for me, it's natural because I remote anyways. So for me, it doesn't matter if I'm talking with my colleagues in Nairobi or if I'm talking to my colleagues in, in UK or Brazil or Tokyo. Well, neat. So you've each had kind of an interesting journey so far. So one way we've gotten to know each other quite well is through this uh, growth mindset reading group that we have every once in a while. I don't know if it's so much of a reading group or really a growth mindset group help group or something like that. Because one of the things we did that uh, has made an impact for me is that we each picked one thing that we had wanted to do that we hadn't at the, to that point done or done very much of. And I know you each picked an interesting activity. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that activity? Okay, so starting with Victor. So I picked up Olympic weightlifting. I think one of the things I was very interested in doing was to become stronger. When I was younger, I used to I used to really like playing um, soccer, and but I really like to play soccer. And I think part of playing soccer is in my mind. I think there are two sort of main things you need. You need uh, the the physique. You need you know obviously the strength and the stamina and, and all of that. But also you need the mind, like the intelligence to you know oh who should I pass to, when should I make a run, how to dribble, and all of those things. And I feel like. I might have been, I might have been the kind of player that had the intelligence, but just simply didn't 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 have the physique for it, right? And I think this this applies to sports that are very physical, right? You don't have to be the strongest person, but you do have to be strong, right? Where I was sort of getting at with this is, I I thought, oh, you know what, this would be a a good uh, hobby because it's completely out of any other thing that I've done, but also it's going to help me get stronger. And there was a very nice CrossFit gym, very close to very close to lab, and also very close to where I, where I lived in, in Nairobi. And there was a great coach. She had been, you know, doing Olympic weightlifting and coaching Olympic weightlifters for several years, and she was very encouraging. She was like, "Hey, you know what? Uh, you've got the height for it. You've got the physique. Like, just focus on your technique, and the strength will come." And that sort of helped me not worry about what I was doing, uh, whether I was lifting, uh, you know, 200 pounds or whatever it is, but just helped me just enjoy the, the, the sport as it was. Okay. So one thing I remember, you're a kind of skinny guy. Okay. So in all this <laughs> weightlifting, have you like become like really beefy? I wish, uh, I, I wish I have, but I have not. No, I have not. <laughs> I'm sure it's had some, some effect. Okay. Okay. So now over to you, Julian. I know you did something totally different. Tell us about that. Yes, I picked up learning Swahili in order to prepare for Kenya. <laughs> okay. So tell us. All right. Give us like a couple of words or your favorite phrase in Swahili. Oh, like um, you know. In the meantime, I got a baby, so everything is kind of lost. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. The good thing is, I I still remember a little bit of the sound, and. I think that's the most important thing to prepare, you know, then because I, I I think I cannot learn the language if I'm not in Kenya, if I'm not exposed to it. But at least having some kind of background, some basics, you know, then you I think you it helps you pick up faster. But I, I can say um Gina Languni Julian. Oh my and, name is Julian. 
my name is Julian. Yeah. Okay. And how about oh, one of my favorite words? I didn't learn very much Swahili myself, but the word for welcome, which is karabuni or karabu. yes. Yeah, that's a nice word. And then I think there's a word, I'm not sure if it's Swahili or uh, perhaps it's Ubuntu. It, uh, or, yeah, I think it's Ubuntu. I mean, that, that's the word, actually. It's, it comes from the Bantu language. It means um, I, I am because of you. Is that right? Have you heard the word Ubuntu? Yeah, it's a very nice uh, word. In the, yeah, the, the word Ubuntu is actually quite uh, popular. I, I think it's the basis for the, the operating system, right? It's a, just as you said, right, I am because uh, we are. And I think it's just like, you know, the, the togetherness of that is, you know, present in the African, many African cultures. Okay, very good. So now we, our last question. Every um, one of these podcasts, we ask a, a growth mindset themed question. And today's question is, have you had any failure or disappointment in your life that you managed to ultimately turn into a learning experience or something else positive? So uh, I guess first, Julian. You know, the funny thing is when I thought about it, I came up with um, language actually that in, that in high school, I was miserable at English. And then, so this connects really nicely with this growth mindset um, Swahili <laughs> task. Like I was kind of embarrassed, you know, in, at school. And um, then when I had the chance at university to do an um, exchange here to study abroad, I consciously picked a country where I, where I knew the English was good. And this was Sweden. And so I went to Sweden and, and I had my exposure kind of, and I improved my English. But I think I, I'm not afraid anymore of, of languages or kind of getting exposure ex, uh, exposed to it. Yeah, you've pushed yourself in all these different languages. Now, beyond English, you, I guess you must have learned some Swedish in Sweden. And that's really something. I, uh, I ha actually am not great at languages myself. So it's a good lesson for me that the things that you're weakest at, if you don't let that become an obstacle, it's obviously the areas where you have the most to learn. So it's, yeah, it's a really powerful lesson. Very good. Okay, so over to you now, Victor. How about you? I think the area that uh, I definitely still need more work would be public speaking. And there's a I do remember very vividly in high school there was a there was a debate, and the whole school was supposed to you know attend that debate. And for some reason, I got chosen to be on on one side of the debate, and I had to you know debate this weird topic uh, that I can't remember in front of the whole school. Uh, but needless to say, I flopped completely <laughs> at, that, at that debate because I was so nervous and I completely forgot all the arguments that I was supposed to make and my team didn't win. But one of the things I took away from that lesson was that I needed to work on my ability to stand in front of people and speak. And I made that a mission all through undergrad. I, even though I'm not that great yet, I, I think, if I hadn't put myself out there in, in undergrad, and one of the things that I did when I, you know, in undergrad was that I decided, okay, I was going to be involved in these, uh, you know, student developer clubs. So, for example, I was like a Microsoft student partner for a year. I was a Google developer group organizer. And what basically what this meant was that I was always you know, organizing events and putting myself in, in positions where I had to speak in front of uh, my peers. But even at CMU, when I moved, when I 
uh, went to do my master's, I was involved in Toastmasters, and I would try as much as possible, no matter how uncomfortable it was, to make sure I, I gave speeches a, a few times in, in the semester, and definitely put myself in this you know, uncomfortable position of speaking publicly. That's great, actually. I think that you are quite an effective speaker. It comes across, I've known you now for quite a while. I mean, you're a very passionate person. So uh, I think you have maybe not completely accomplished your mission, but you've got 95% of the way. So can- Well, that's very kind of you to say, John. Well, it's true. So that wraps up today's podcast. A big thanks to Victor and also to Julian and to our producer, Andy Aaron. I'm John Lenchner, and thanks for listening.